Welcome to the 31st reading of the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 3, Chapter 17, Section 5. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Section 5. But after the Lord has withdrawn the sinner from the abyss of perdition and set him apart for himself by means of adoption, having begotten him again and formed him to newness of life, he embraces him as a new creature and bestows the gifts of his spirit. This is the acceptance to which Peter refers and by which believers after their calling are approved by God even in respect of works. For the Lord cannot but love and delight in the good qualities which he produces in them by means of his spirit. But we must always bear in mind that the only way in which men are accepted of God in respect of works is that whatever good works he has conferred upon those whom he admits to favor, he, by an increase of liberality, honors with his acceptance. For whence their good works, but just that the Lord, having chosen them as vessels of honor, is pleased to adorn them with true purity. And how are their actions deemed good, as if there was no deficiency in them, but just that their merciful Father indulgently pardons the spots and blemishes which adhere to them? In one word, the only meaning of acceptance in this passage is that God accepts and takes pleasure in his children, in whom he sees the traces and lineaments of his own countenance. We have elsewhere said that regeneration is a renewal of the divine image in us. Since God, therefore, whenever he beholds his own face, justly loves it and holds it in honor, the life of believers, when formed to holiness and justice, is said not without cause to be pleasing to him. But because believers, while encompassed with mortal flesh, are still sinners, and their good works only begun savor of the corruption of the flesh, God cannot be propitious either to their persons or their works unless he embraces them more in Christ than in themselves. In this way are we to understand the passages in which God declares that he is clement and merciful to the cultivators of righteousness. Moses said to the Israelites, quote, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Unquote. These words afterwards became a common form of expression among the people. Thus Solomon in his prayer at the dedication says, quote, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath, who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. Unquote. 1 Kings 8, verse 23. The same words are repeated by Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1, verse 5. As the Lord in all covenants of mercy stipulates on his part for integrity and holiness of life in his servants, Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, lest his goodness might be held in derision, or anyone puffed up with exultation in it, might speak flatteringly to his soul while walking in the depravity of his heart, so he is pleased that in this way those whom he admits to communion in the covenant should be kept to their duty. Still, however, the covenant was gratuitous at first, and such it ever remains. Accordingly, while David declares, quote, According to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me, unquote, yet does he not omit the fountain to which I have referred. Quote, he delivered me, because he delighted in me. Unquote. 2 Samuel 22, verses 20 and 21. In commending the goodness of his cause, he derogates in no respect from the free mercy which takes precedence of all the gifts of which it is the origin. Section 6. Here, by the way, it is of importance to observe how those forms of expression differ from legal promises. By legal promises I mean not those which lie scattered in the books of Moses, for there many evangelical promises occur, but those which properly belong to the legal dispensation. 
All such promises, by whatever name they may be called, are made under the condition that the reward is to be paid on the things commanded being done. But when it is said that the Lord keeps a covenant of mercy with those who love him, the words rather demonstrate what kind of servants those are who have sincerely entered into the covenant than express the reason why the Lord blesses them. The nature of the demonstration is this. As the end for which God bestows upon us the gift of eternal life is that he may be loved, feared, and worshipped by us, so the end of all the promises of mercy contained in Scripture justly is that we may reverence and serve their author. Therefore, whenever we hear that he does good to those that observe his law, let us remember that the sons of God are designated by the duty which they ought perpetually to observe, that his reason for adopting us is that we may reverence him as a father. Hence, if we would not deprive ourselves of the privilege of adoption, we must always strive in the direction of our calling. On the other hand, however, let us remember that the completion of the divine mercy depends not on the works of believers, but that God himself fulfills the promise of salvation to those who by right conduct correspond to their calling because he recognizes the true badges of sons and those only who are directed to good by his Spirit. To this we may refer what is said of the members of the church, quote, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart, unquote, etc. Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2. Again in Isaiah, quote, Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He that walketh righteously, unquote, etc. Isaiah 33, verses 14 and 15. For the thing described is not the strength with which believers can stand before the Lord, but the manner in which our most merciful Father introduces them into his fellowship and defends and confirms them therein. For as he detests sin and loves righteousness, so those whom he unites to himself he purifies by his Spirit, that he may render them conformable to himself and to his kingdom. Therefore, if it be asked, what is the first cause which gives the saints free access to the kingdom of God, and a firm and permanent footing in it? The answer is easy. The Lord, in his mercy, once adopted and never defends them. But if the question relates to the manner, we must descend to regeneration and the fruits of it as enumerated in the 15th Psalm. Section 7. There seems much more difficulty in those passages which distinguish good works by the name of righteousness, and declare that man is justified by them. The passages of the former class are very numerous as when the observance of the commandments is termed justification or righteousness. Of the other classes we have a description of the words of Moses, quote, It shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments, unquote. Deuteronomy 6, verse 25. But if you object that it is a legal promise, which having an impossible condition annexed to it proves nothing, there are other passages to which the same answer cannot be made. For instance, quote, if the man be poor, unquote, quote, thou shalt deliver him the pledge again when the sun goeth down, unquote, quote, and it shall be righteousness unto thee before the Lord thy God, unquote. Deuteronomy 24, verse 13. Likewise the words of the prophet, quote, Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed, and that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore, unquote. Psalm 106 verses 30 and 31. Accordingly, the Pharisees of our day think they have here full scope for exaltation. For as we say that when justification by faith is established, justification by works falls. They argue on the same principle. If there is a justification by works, it is false to say that we are justified by faith only. When I grant that the precepts of the law are termed righteousness, I do nothing strange, for they are so in reality. I must, however, inform the reader that the Hebrew word mem yod kof kite has been rendered by the Septuagint not very appropriately. Greek word delta iota chi alpha iota omega mu alpha tau alpha dikaiomata justifications instead of edicts. But I readily give up any dispute as to the word, nor do I deny that the law of God contains a perfect righteousness. For although we are debtors to do all the things which it enjoins, and therefore even after a full obedience are unprofitable servants, yet, as the Lord has deigned to give it the name of righteousness, it is not ours to take from it what he has given. We readily admit, therefore, that the perfect obedience of the law is righteousness, and the observance of any precept a part of righteousness, the whole substance of righteousness being contained in the remaining parts. 
but we deny that any such righteousness ever exists. Hence we discard the righteousness of the law, not as being in itself maimed and defective, but because of the weakness of our flesh it nowhere appears. But then Scripture does not merely call the precepts of the law righteousness. It also gives this name to the works of the saints, as when it states that Zacharias and his wife, quote, were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless, unquote. Luke 1, verse 6. Surely when it thus speaks, it estimates works more according to the nature of the law than their own proper character. And here again I must repeat the observation which I lately made, that the law is not to be ascertained from a careless translation of the Greek interpreter. Still, as Luke chose not to make any change on the received version, I will not contend for this. The things contained in the law God enjoined upon man for righteousness, but that righteousness we attain not unless by observing the whole law. Every transgression, whatever, destroys it. While, therefore, the law commands nothing but righteousness, if we look to itself, every one of its precepts is righteousness. If we look to the men by whom they are performed, being transgressors in many things, they by no means merit the praise of righteousness for one work, and that a work which, through their imperfection adhering to it, is always in some respect vicious. Section 8. I come to the second class, in which the chief difficulty lies. Paul finds nothing stronger to prove justification by faith than that which is written of Abraham. He, quote, believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness, unquote. Romans 4, verse 3, and Galatians 3, verse 6. Therefore, when it is said that the achievement of Phineas, quote, was counted unto him for righteousness, unquote, Psalm 106, verse 30 and 31, we may argue that what Paul contends for respecting faith applies also to works. Our opponents accordingly, as if the point were proved, set it down that though we are not justified without faith, it is not by faith only that our justification is completed by works. Here I beseech believers, as they know that the true standard of righteousness must be derived from Scripture alone, to consider with me seriously and religiously how Scripture can be fairly reconciled with that view. Paul, knowing that justification by faith was the refuge of those who wanted righteousness of their own, confidently infers that all who are justified by faith are excluded from the righteousness of works. But as it is clear that this justification is common to all believers, he with equal confidence infers that no man is justified by works, nay, more that justification is without any help from works. But it is one thing to determine what power works have in themselves, and another to determine what place they are to hold after justification by faith has been established. If a price is to be put upon works according to their own worth, we hold that they are unfit to appear in the presence of God, that man, accordingly, has no works in which he can glory before God, and that hence, deprived of all aid from works, he is justified by faith alone. Justification, moreover, we thus define. The sinner being admitted into communion with Christ is, for his sake, reconciled to God. When purged by his blood, he obtains the remission of sins, and clothed with righteousness, just as if it were his own, stands secure before the judgment seat of heaven. Forgiveness of sins being previously given, the good works which follow have a value different from their merit, because whatever is imperfect in them is covered by the perfection of Christ, and all their blemishes and pollutions are wiped away by his purity, so as never to come under the cognizance of the divine tribunal. The guilt of all transgressions, by which men are prevented from offering God an acceptable service, being thus effaced, and the imperfection which is wont to sully even good works being buried, the good works which are done by believers are deemed righteous, or, which is the same thing, are imputed for righteousness. Section 9. Now, should anyone state this to me as an objection to justification by faith, I would first ask him whether a man is deemed righteous for one holy work or two, while in all the other acts of his life he is a transgressor of the law. This were indeed more than absurd. I would next ask whether he is deemed righteous on account of many good works, if he is guilty of transgression in some one part. Even this, he will not venture to maintain in opposition to the authority of the law, which pronounces, quote, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, unquote. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. I would go still farther and ask whether there be any work which may not justly be convicted of impurity or imperfection. How then will it appear to that eye before which even the heavens are not clean and angels are chargeable with folly? Job 4, verse 18. 
Thus he will be forced to confess that no good work exists that is not defiled both by contrary transgression and also by its own corruption, so that it cannot be honored as righteousness. But if it is certainly owing to justification by faith that works, otherwise impure, unclean, defective, unworthy of the sight, not to say of the love of God, are imputed for righteousness, why do they by boasting of this imputation aim at the destruction of that justification, but for which the boast were vain? Are they desirous of having a viper's birth? To this their ungodly language tends. They cannot deny that justification by faith is the beginning, the foundation, the cause, the subject, the substance of works of righteousness, and yet they conclude that justification is not by faith because good works are counted for righteousness. Let us have done then with this frivolity and confess the fact as it stands. If any righteousness which works are supposed to possess depends on justification by faith, this doctrine is not only not impaired, but on the contrary confirmed, its power being thereby more brightly displayed. Nor let us suppose that after free justification works are commended as if they afterwards succeeded to the office of justifying, or shared the office with faith. For did not justification by faith always remain entire, the impurity of works would be disclosed. There is nothing absurd in the doctrine, that though man is justified by faith, he is himself not only not righteous, but the righteousness attributed to his works is beyond their own deserts. Section 10. In this way we can admit not only that there is a partial righteousness in works, as our adversaries maintain, but that they are approved by God as if they were absolutely perfect. If we remember on what foundation this is rested, every difficulty will be solved. The first time when a work begins to be acceptable is when it is received with pardon. And whence pardon? But just because God looks upon us and all that belongs to us as in Christ? Therefore, as we ourselves, when engrafted into Christ, appear righteous before God, because our iniquities are covered with his innocence, so our works are, and are deemed righteous, because everything otherwise defective in them, being buried by the purity of Christ, is not imputed. Thus we may justly say that not only ourselves, but our works also, are justified by faith alone. Now if that righteousness of works, whatever it be, depends on faith and free justification, and is produced by it, it ought to be included under it, and, so to speak, made subordinate to it as the effect to its cause. So far is it from being entitled to be set up to impair or destroy the doctrine of justification. Thus Paul, to prove that our blessedness depends not on our works, but on the mercy of God, makes special use of the words of David, quote, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, unquote. Quote, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, unquote. Should anyone here obtrude the numberless passages in which blessedness seems to be attributed to works, as, quote, Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, unquote. Quote, He that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he, unquote. Quote, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, unquote, and, quote, that endureth temptation, unquote. Quote, Blessed are they that keep judgment, unquote, that are, quote, pure in heart, unquote, quote, meek, unquote. Quote, merciful, unquote, etc. They cannot make out that Paul's doctrine is not true. For seeing that the qualities thus extolled never all so exist in man as to obtain for him the approbation of God, it follows that man is always miserable until he is exempted from misery by the pardon of his sins. Since then all the kinds of blessedness extolled in the scripture are vain, so that man derives no benefit from them until he obtains blessedness by the forgiveness of sins, a forgiveness which makes way for them, it follows that this is not only the chief and highest, but the only blessedness, unless you are prepared to maintain that it is impaired by things which owe their entire existence to it. There is much less to trouble us in the name of righteous, which is usually given to believers. I admit that they are so called from the holiness of their lives, but as they rather exert themselves in the study of righteousness than fulfill righteousness itself, any degree of it which they possess must yield to justification by faith, to which it is owing that it is what it is. Section 11. But they say that we have a still more serious business with James, who in express terms opposes us. For he asks, quote, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Unquote, and adds, quote, You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Unquote. James 2, verses 21 and 24. What then? Will they engage Paul in a quarrel with James? 
If they hold James to be a servant of Christ, his sentiments must be understood as not descending from Christ, speaking by the mouth of Paul. By the mouth of Paul, the Spirit declares that Abraham obtained justification by faith, not by works. We also teach that all are justified by faith without the works of the law. By James, the same Spirit declares that both Abraham's justification and ours consists of works, and not of faith only. It is certain that the Spirit cannot be at variance with himself. Where then will be the agreement? It is enough for our opponents, provided they can tear up that justification by faith, which we regard as fixed by the deepest roots. To restore peace to the conscience is to them a matter of no great concern. Hence you may see that though they indeed carp at the doctrine of justification by faith, they meanwhile point out no goal of righteousness at which the conscience may rest. Let them triumph then as they will, so long as the only victory they can boast of is that they have deprived righteousness of all its certainty. This miserable victory they will indeed obtain when the light of truth is extinguished, and the Lord permits them to darken it with their lies. But wherever the truth of God stands, they cannot prevail. I deny then that the passage of James, which they are constantly holding up before us as if it were the shield of Achilles, gives them the slightest countenance. To make this plain, let us first attend to the scope of the apostle, and then show wherein their hallucination consists. As at that time, and the evil has existed in the church ever since, there were many who, while they gave manifest proof of their infidelity by neglecting and omitting all the works peculiar to believers, ceased not falsely to glory in the name of faith. James here dissipates their vain confidence. His intention, therefore, is not to derogate in any degree from the power of true faith, but to show how absurdly these triflers laid claim only to the empty name, and resting satisfied with it felt secure in unrestrained indulgence and vice. This state of matters being understood, it will be easy to see where the error of our opponents lies. They fall into a double paralogism, the one in the term faith, the other in the term justifying. The apostle, in giving the name of faith to an empty opinion, altogether differing from true faith, makes a concession which derogates in no respect from his case. This he demonstrates at the outset of the words, quote, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works? Unquote. James 2, verse 14. He says not, quote, If a man have faith without works, unquote, but, quote, If he say that he has, unquote. This becomes still clearer when a little after he derides this faith as worse than that of devils, and at last when he calls it, quote, dead, unquote. You may easily ascertain his meaning by the explanation, quote, thou believest that there is one God, unquote. Surely if all which is contained in that faith is a belief in the existence of God, there is no wonder that it does not justify. The denial of such a power to it cannot be supposed to derogate in any degree from Christian faith, which is of a very different description. For how does true faith justify unless by uniting us to Christ, so that being made one with him, we may be admitted to a participation in his righteousness? It does not justify because it forms an idea of the divine existence, but because it reclines with confidence on the divine mercy. Section 12 we have not made good our point until we dispose of the other paralogism, since James places a part of justification in works. If you would make James consistent with the other scriptures and with himself, you must give the word justify, as used by him, a different meaning from what it has with Paul. In the sense of Paul, we are said to be justified when the remembrance of our unrighteousness is obliterated, and we are counted righteous. Had James had the same meaning, it would have been absurd for him to quote the words of Moses, quote, Abraham believed God, unquote, etc. The context runs thus, quote, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac its son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, unquote. If it is absurd to say that the effect was prior to its cause, either Moses falsely declares in that passage that Abraham's faith was imputed for righteousness, or Abraham, by his obedience in offering up Isaac, did not merit righteousness. Before the existence of Ishmael, who was a grown youth at the birth of Isaac, Abraham was justified by his faith. How then can we say that he obtained justification by an obedience which followed long after? Wherefore, either James erroneously inverts the proper order, this it were impious to suppose. Or he meant not to say that he was justified, as if he deserved to be deemed just. What then? 
It appears certain that he is speaking of the manifestation, not of the imputation of righteousness, as if he had said, those who are justified by true faith prove their justification by obedience and good works, not by a bare and imaginary semblance of faith. In one word, he is not discussing the mode of justification, but requiring that the justification of believers shall be operative. And as Paul contends that men are justified without the aid of works, so James will not allow any to be regarded as justified who are destitute of good works. Due attention to the scope will thus disentangle every doubt. For the error of our opponents lies chiefly in this, that they think James is defining the mode of justification, whereas his only object is to destroy the depraved security of those who vainly pretended faith as an excuse for the contempt of good works. Therefore, let them twist the words of James as they may, they will never extract out of them more than the two propositions, that an empty phantom of faith does not justify, and that the believer, not contented with such an imagination, manifests his justification by good works. Section 13. They gain nothing by quoting from Paul to the same effect, that, quote, not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified, unquote. Romans 2, verse 13. I am unwilling to evade the difficulty by the solution of Ambrose, that Paul spoke thus because faith in Christ is the fulfillment of the law. This I regard as a mere subterfuge, and one, too, for which there is no occasion, as the explanation is perfectly obvious. The apostle's object is to suppress the absurd confidence of the Jews, who gave out that they alone had a knowledge of the law, though at the very time they were its greatest despisers. That they might not plume themselves so much on a bare acquaintance with the law, he reminds them that when justification is sought by the law, the thing required is not the knowledge, but the observance of it. We certainly mean not to dispute that the righteousness of the law consists in works, and not only so, but that justification consists in the dignity and merits of works. But this proves not that we are justified by works unless they can produce someone who has fulfilled the law. That Paul had no other meaning is abundantly obvious from the context. After charging Jews and Gentiles in common with unrighteousness, he descends to particulars and says that, quote, as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, unquote, referring to the Gentiles, and that, quote, as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law, unquote, referring to the Jews. Moreover, as they, winking at their transgressions, boasted merely of the law, he adds most appropriately that the law was passed with the view of justifying not those who only heard it, but those only who obeyed it. As if he had said, Do you seek righteousness in the law? Do not bring forward the mere hearing of it, which is in itself of little weight, but bring works by which you may show that the law has not been given to you in vain. Since in these they were all deficient, it followed that they had no ground of boasting in the law. Paul's meaning, therefore, rather leads to an opposite argument. The righteousness of the law consists in the perfection of works, but no man can boast of fulfilling the law by works, and therefore there is no righteousness by the law. Section 14. They now betake themselves to those passages in which believers boldly submit their righteousness to the judgment of God and wish to be judged accordingly. As in the following passages, quote, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity that is in me, unquote. Again, quote, Hear the right, O Lord, unquote. Quote, Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing, unquote. Again, quote, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God, unquote. Quote, I was also upright before him and I kept myself from mine iniquity, unquote. Again, quote, Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity, unquote. Quote, I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go in with dissemblers, unquote. Quote, Gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men, in whose hands is mischief, and their right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in mine integrity, unquote. Psalm 7, verse 9, and 17, verse 1, and 18, verse 20, and 26, verses 1, 9, and 10. Also, see chapter 19, section 18, and chapter 22, section 10. I have already spoken of the confidence which the saints seem to derive simply from works. The passages now quoted will not occasion much difficulty if we attend to their Greek word, Pi, Epsilon, Xi, Iota, Sigma, Tau, Alpha, Sigma, Iota, Zeta, Pegzostasis. 
Their connection are, as it is commonly called, special circumstances. These are of two kinds, for those who use them have no wish that their whole life should be brought to trial, so that they may be acquitted or condemned according to its tenor. All they wish is that a decision should be given on the particular case, and even here the righteousness which they claim is not with reference to the divine perfection, but only by comparison with the wicked and profane. When the question relates to justification, the thing required is not that the individual have a good ground of acquittal in regard to some particular matter, but that his whole life be in accordance with righteousness. But when the saints implore the divine justice in vindication of their innocence, they do not present themselves as free from fault and in every respect blameless, but while placing their confidence of salvation in the divine goodness only, and trusting that he will vindicate his poor when they are afflicted contrary to justice and equity, they truly commit to him the cause in which the innocent are oppressed. And when they assist themselves with their adversaries at the tribunal of God, they pretend not to an innocence corresponding to the divine purity, were inquiry strictly made, but knowing that in comparison of the malice, dishonesty, craft, and iniquity of their enemies, their sincerity, justice, simplicity, and purity are ascertained and approved by God, they dread not to call upon him to judge between them. Thus, when David said to Saul, quote, The Lord rendered to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness, unquote, 1 Samuel 26, verse 23, he meant not that the Lord should examine and reward every one according to his deserts, but he took the Lord to witness how great his innocence was in comparison of Saul's injustice. Paul, too, when he indulges in the boast, quote, Our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you word. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12, means not to call for the scrutiny of God, but compelled by the calumnies of the wicked he appeals, in contradiction of all their slanders, to his faith and probity, which he knew that God had indulgently accepted. For we see how he elsewhere says, quote, I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, unquote? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4. In other words, he was aware that the divine judgment far transcended the blind estimate of man. Therefore, however believers may, in defending their integrity against the hypocrisy of the ungodly, appeal to God as their witness and judge, still, when the question is with God alone, they all with one mouth exclaim, quote, If thou, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Unquote. Again, quote, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. Unquote. Distrusting their own works, they gladly exclaim, quote, Thy loving kindness is better than life. Unquote. Psalm 130, verse 3, and 143, verse 2, and 63, verse 3. Section 15. There are other passages not unlike those quoted above, at which some may still demur. Solomon says, quote, The just man walketh in his integrity. Unquote. Proverbs 20, verse 7. Again, quote, And the way of righteousness is life, and in the pathway thereof there is no death. Unquote. Proverbs 12, verse 28. For this reason Ezekiel says, He that, quote, Hath walked in my statutes, and hath kept my judgments to deal truly, he is just, he shall surely live. Unquote. Ezekiel 18, verses 9 and 21, and 33, verse 15. None of these declarations do we deny or obscure. But let one of the sons of Adam come forward with such integrity. If there is none, they must perish from the presence of God or betake themselves to the asylum of mercy. Still we deny not that the integrity of believers, though partial and imperfect, is a step to immortality. How so, but just that the works of those whom the Lord has assumed into the covenant of grace, he tries not by their merit, but embraces with paternal indulgence. By this we understand not with the schoolmen that works derive their value from accepting grace. For their meaning is that works otherwise unfit to obtain salvation in terms of law are made fit for such a purpose by the divine acceptance. On the other hand, I maintain that these works, being sullied both by other transgressions and by their own deficiencies, have no other value than this, that the Lord indulgently pardons them. In other words, that the righteousness which he bestows on man is gratuitous. Here they unseasonably obtrude those passages in which the apostle prays for all perfection to believers. Quote, to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father. Unquote. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 13 and elsewhere. These words were strongly urged by the Celestines of old in maintaining the perfection of holiness in the present life. 
To this we deem it sufficient briefly to reply with Augustine that the goal to which all the pious ought to aspire is to appear in the presence of God without spot and blemish. But as the course of the present life is at best nothing more than progress, we shall never reach the goal until we have laid aside the body of sin and been completely united to the Lord. If anyone choose to give the name of perfection to the saints, I shall not obstinately quarrel with him, provided he defines this perfection in the words of Augustine, quote, When we speak of the perfect virtue of the saints, part of this perfection consists in the recognition of their imperfection both in truth and in humility, unquote. Chapter 18. The Righteousness of Works Improperly Inferred from Rewards. There are ten sections. Section 1. Let us now proceed to those passages which affirm that God will render to everyone according to his deeds. Of this description are the following, quote, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, unquote. Quote, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life, unquote. But, quote, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, unquote. Quote, they that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation, unquote. Quote, come, ye blessed of my Father, unquote. Quote, for I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink, unquote, etc. To these we may add the passages which describe eternal life as the reward of works, such as the following, quote, The recompense of a man's hands shall be rendered unto him, unquote. Quote, he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded, unquote. Quote, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, unquote. Quote, every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor, unquote. Matthew 16, verse 27. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Romans 2, verse 6. John 5, verse 29. Matthew 25, verse 34. Proverbs 12, verse 14, and 13, verse 13, Matthew 5, verse 12, Luke 6, verse 23, and 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8. The passages in which it is said that God will reward every man according to his works are easily disposed of, for that mode of expression indicates not the cause, but the order of sequence. Now it is beyond a doubt that the steps by which the Lord in his mercy consummates our salvation are these, quote, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified, unquote. Romans 8, verse 30. But though it is by mercy alone that God admits his people to life, yet as he leads them into possession of it by the course of good works, that he may complete his work in them in the order which he has destined, it is not strange that they are said to be crowned according to their works, since by these, doubtless, they are prepared for receiving the crown of immortality. Nay, for this reason they are aptly said to work out their own salvation, Philippians 2, verse 12, while by exerting themselves in good works they aspire to eternal life, just as they are elsewhere told to labor for the meat which perisheth not, John 6, verse 27, while they acquire life for themselves by believing in Christ. And yet it is immediately added that this meat, quote, the Son of Man shall give unto you, unquote. Hence it appears that working is not at all opposed to grace, but refers to pursuit, and therefore it follows not that believers are the authors of their own salvation, or that it is the result of their works. What then? The moment they are admitted to fellowship with Christ by the knowledge of the gospel and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, their eternal life is begun, and then he which hath begun a good work in them, quote, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, unquote. Philippians 1 verse 6. And it is performed when in righteousness and holiness they bear a resemblance to their heavenly Father and prove that they are not degenerate sons. Section 2. There is nothing in the term reward to justify the inference that our works are the cause of salvation. First, let it be a fixed principle in our hearts that the kingdom of heaven is not the hire of servants, but the inheritance of sons. Ephesians 1 verse 18 an inheritance obtained by those only whom the Lord has adopted as sons, and obtained for no other cause than this adoption, quote, the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman, unquote. Galatians 4, verse 30. 
and hence in those very passages in which the Holy Spirit promises eternal glory as the reward of works by expressly calling it an inheritance he demonstrates that it comes to us from some other quarter thus Christ enumerates the works for which he bestows heaven as a recompense while he is calling his elect to the possession of it but he at the same time adds that it is to be possessed by right of inheritance Matthew 25 verse 34 Paul too encourages servants while faithfully doing their duty to hope for reward from the Lord but adds quote of the inheritance unquote Colossians 3 verse 24 you see how, as it were, in formal terms, they carefully caution us to attribute eternal blessedness not to works, but to the adoption of God. Why then do they at the same time make mention of works? This question will be elucidated by an example from Scripture, Genesis 15, verse 5, and 17, verse 1. Before the birth of Isaac, Abraham had received promise of a seed in whom all the families of the earth should be blessed. The propagation of a seed that for numbers should equal the stars of heaven and the sand of the sea, etc. Many years after, he prepares, in obedience to a divine message, to sacrifice his son. Having done this act of obedience, he receives the promise, quote, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Unquote. Genesis 22, verses 16 through 18. What is it we hear? Did Abraham, by his obedience, merit the blessing which had been promised him before the precept was given? Here, assuredly, we see without ambiguity that God rewards the works of believers with blessings which he had given them before the works were thought of, there still being no cause for the blessings which he bestows but his own mercy. Section 3. And yet the Lord does not act in vain or delude us when he says that he renders to works what he had freely given previous to works as he would have us to be exercised in good works while aspiring to the manifestation, or, if I may so speak, the fruition of the things which he has promised, and by means of them to hasten on to the blessed hope set before us in heaven, the fruit of the promises is justly ascribed to those things by which it is brought to maturity. Both things were elegantly expressed by the apostle when he told the Colossians to study the offices of charity, quote, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, unquote. Colossians 1, verse 5. For when he says that the gospel informed them of the hope which was treasured up for them in heaven, he declares that it depends on Christ alone and not at all upon works. With this accords the saying of Peter, that believers, quote, are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, unquote. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. When he says that they strive on account of it, he intimates that believers must continue running during the whole course of their lives in order that they may attain it. But to prevent us from supposing that the reward which is promised becomes a kind of merit, our Lord introduced a parable, in which he represented himself as a householder, who sent all the laborers whom he met to work in his vineyard, some at the first hour of the day, others at the second, others at the third, some even at the eleventh. At evening he paid them all alike. The interpretation of this parable is briefly and truly given by that ancient writer, whoever he was, who wrote the book De Vocatione Gentium, which goes under the name of Ambrose. I will give it in his words rather than my own. Quote, by means of this comparison, our Lord represented the many various modes of calling as pertaining to grace alone, where those who were introduced into the vineyard at the eleventh hour and made equal to those who had toiled the whole day doubtless represent the case of those whom the indulgence of God, to commend the excellence of grace, has rewarded in the decline of the day and the conclusion of life, not paying the price of labor, but shedding the riches of his goodness on those whom he chose without works, in order that even those who bore the heat of the day and yet received no more than those who came last may understand that they received a gift of grace, not the higher of works." Unquote. Lastly, it is also worthy of remark that in those passages in which eternal life is called the reward of works, it is not taken simply for that communion which we have with God preparatory to a blessed immortality, when with paternal benevolence he embraces us in Christ, but for the possession, or, as it is called, the fruition of blessedness, as the very words of Christ express it, quote, in the world to come eternal life, unquote, Mark 10, verse 30. 
and elsewhere, quote, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, unquote, etc. Matthew 25, verse 34. For this reason also Paul gives the name of adoption to that revelation of adoption which shall be made at the resurrection, and which adoption he afterwards interprets to mean the redemption of our body. Romans 8, verse 23. But otherwise, as alienation from God is eternal death, so when man is received into favor by God that he may enjoy communion with him and become one with him, he passes from death unto life. This is owing to adoption alone. Although after their manner they pertinaciously urge the term reward, we can always carry them back to the declaration of Peter that eternal life is the reward of faith. 1 Peter 1, verse 9. Section 4. Let us not suppose, then, that the Holy Spirit, by this promise, commends the dignity of our works as if they were deserving of such a reward. For Scripture leaves us nothing of which we may glory in the sight of God. Nay, rather its whole object is to repress, humble, cast down, and completely crush our pride. But in this way help is given to our weakness, which would immediately give way were it not sustained by this expectation and soothed by this comfort. First, let every man reflect for himself how hard it is not only to leave all things, but to leave and abjure oneself. And yet this is the training by which Christ initiates his disciples, that is, all the godly. Secondly, he thus keeps them all their lifetime under the discipline of the cross, lest they should allow their heart to long for or confide in present good. In short, his treatment is usually such that wherever they turn their eyes as far as this world extends, they see nothing before them but despair. And hence Paul says, quote, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. That they may not fail in these great straits, the Lord is present reminding them to lift their head higher and extend their view farther, that in Him they may find a happiness which they see not in the world. To this happiness he gives the name of reward, hire, recompense, not as estimating the merits of works, but intimating that it is a compensation for their straits, sufferings, and affronts, etc. Wherefore, there is nothing to prevent us from calling eternal life a recompense after the example of Scripture, because in it the Lord brings his people from labor to quiet, from affliction to a prosperous and desirable condition, from sorrow to joy, from poverty to affluence, from ignominy to glory, in short, exchanges all the evils which they endured for blessings. Thus there will be no impropriety in considering holiness of life as the way, not indeed the way which gives access to the glory of the heavenly kingdom, but a way by which God conducts his elect to the manifestation of that kingdom, since his good pleasure is to glorify those whom he has sanctified. Romans 8, verse 30. Only let us not imagine that merit and hire are correlative terms, a point on which the sophists absurdly insist, from not attending to the end to which we have adverted. How preposterous it is when the Lord calls us to one end to look to another. Nothing is clearer than that a reward is promised to good works, in order to support the weakness of our flesh by some degree of comfort, but not to inflate our minds with vain glory. He therefore, who from merit infers reward, or weighs works and reward in the same balance, errs very widely from the end which God has in view. Section 5. Accordingly, when the Scripture speaks of, quote, a crown of righteousness which God the righteous judge shall give, unquote, quote, at that day, unquote, 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, I not only say with Augustine, quote, to whom could the righteous judge give the crown if the merciful Father had not given grace, and how could there have been righteousness but for the precedence of grace which justifies the ungodly? How could these be paid as things due were not things not due previously given, unquote? But I also add, how could he impute righteousness to our works, did not his indulgence hide the unrighteousness that is in them? How could he deem them worthy of reward, did he not with boundless goodness destroy what is unworthy in them? Augustine is wont to give the name of grace to eternal life, because while it is the recompense of works, it is bestowed by the gratuitous gifts of God. But scripture humbles us more, and at the same time elevates us. For besides forbidding us to glory in works, because they are the gratuitous gifts of God, it tells us that they are always defiled by some degrees of impurity, so that they cannot satisfy God when they are tested by the standard of his justice. But that, lest our activity should be destroyed, they please merely by pardon. But though Augustine speaks somewhat differently from us, it is plain from his words that the difference is more apparent than real. 
after drawing a contrast between two individuals, the one with a life holy and perfect almost to a miracle, the other honest indeed and of pure morals, yet not so perfect as not to leave much room for desiring better, he at length infers, quote, He who seems inferior in conduct, yet on account of the true faith in God by which he lives. Habakkuk 2, verse 4, and in conformity to which he accuses himself and all his faults, praises God and all his good works, takes shame to himself, and describes glory to God, from whom he receives both forgiveness for his sins and the love of well-doing. The moment he is set free from this life is translated into the society of Christ. Why, but just on account of his faith? For though it saves no man without works, such faith being reprobate and not working by love, yet by means of it sins are forgiven. For the just lives by faith. Without it works which seem good are converted into sins." Here he not obscurely acknowledges what we so strongly maintain, that the righteousness of good works depends on their being approved by God in the way of pardon. Section 6. In a sense similar to the above passages, our opponents quote the following, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Quote. Luke 16, verse 9. Quote, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life." Unquote. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17-19 For the good works which we enjoy in eternal blessedness are compared to riches. I answer that we shall never attain to the true knowledge of these passages unless we attend to the scope of the Spirit in uttering them. If it is true, as Christ says, quote, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, unquote, Matthew 6, verse 21. Then, as the children of the world are intent on providing those things which form the delight of the present life, so it is the duty of believers, after they have learned that this life will shortly pass away like a dream, to take care that those things which they would truly enjoy be transmitted thither, where their entire life is to be spent. We must therefore do like those who begin to remove to any place where they mean to fix their abode. As they send forward their effects and grudge not to want them for a season, because they think the more they have in their future residence, the happier they are, so if we think that heaven is our country, we should send our wealth thither rather than retain it here, where on our sudden departure it will be lost to us. But how shall we transmit it? by contributing to the necessities of the poor, the Lord imputing to himself whatever is given to them. Hence, that excellent promise, quote, He that hath pity on the poor lendeth to the Lord, unquote. Proverbs 19, verse 17, and Matthew 25, verse 40. And again, quote, He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully, unquote. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. What we give to our brethren in the exercise of charity is a deposit with the Lord, who, as a faithful depositary, will ultimately restore it with abundant interest. Are our duties then of such value with God that they are as a kind of treasure placed in his hand? Who can hesitate to say so when Scripture so often and so plainly attests it? But if anyone would lead from the mere kindness of God to the merit of works, his error will receive no support from these passages. For all you can properly infer from them is the inclination on the part of God to treat us with indulgence. For in order to animate us in well-doing, he allows no act of obedience, however unworthy of his eye, to pass unrewarded. Section 7 But they insist more strongly on the words of the Apostle when, in consoling the Thessalonians under their tribulations, he tells them that these were sent, quote, that he may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer saying it is a righteous thing which God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you and to you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels unquote. 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 5 through 7 the author of the epistle to the Hebrews says quote, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed towards his name and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister unquote. Hebrews 6 verse 10 to the former passage, I answer that the worthiness spoken of is not that of merit, but as God the Father would have those whom he has chosen for sons to be conformed to Christ the firstborn. And as it behoved him first to suffer and then to enter into his glory, so we also, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Therefore, while we suffer tribulation for the name of Christ, we in a manner receive the marks with which God is wont to stamp the sheep of his flock. Galatians 6, verse 17. Hence we are counted worthy of the kingdom of God, because we bear in our body the marks of our Lord and Master, these being the insignia of the children of God. In this sense are we to understand the passages. Quote, Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10. Quote, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Unquote. Philippians 3, verse 10. The reason which is subjoined is intended not to prove any merit, but to confirm our hope of the kingdom of God, as if he had said, as it is befitting the just judgment of God to take vengeance on your enemies for the tribulation which they have brought upon you, so it is also befitting to give you release and rest from these tribulations. The other passage, which speaks as if it were becoming the justice of God not to overlook the services of his people, and almost insinuates that it were unjust to forget them, is to be thus explained. God, to arouse us from sloth, assures us that every labor which we undertake for the glory of his name shall not be in vain. Let us always remember that this promise, like all other promises, will be of no avail unless it is preceded by the free covenant of mercy on which the whole certainty of our salvation depends. Trusting to it, however, we ought to feel secure that, however unworthy our services, the liberality of God will not allow them to pass unrewarded. To confirm us in this expectation, the Apostle declares that God is not unrighteous, but will act consistently with the promise once given. Righteousness, therefore, refers rather to the truth of the divine promise than to the equity of paying what is due. In this sense, there is a celebrated saying of Augustine, which is containing a memorable sentiment that holy man declined not repeatedly to employ, and which I think not unworthy of being constantly remembered. Quote, Faithful is the Lord, who hath made himself our debtor, not by receiving anything from us, but by promising us all things. Unquote. Augustine in Psalms 32 and 109. Section 8. Our opponents also adduce the following passages from Paul. Quote, Though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. Again, quote, Now abide a faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 13. Quote, Above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Unquote. Colossians 3, verse 14. From the two first passages, our Pharisees contend that we are justified by charity rather than by faith, charity being, as they say, the better virtue. This mode of arguing is easily disposed of. I have elsewhere shown that what is said in the first passage refers not to true faith. In the second passage, we admit that charity is said to be greater than true faith, but not because charity is more meritorious, but because it is more fruitful, because it is of wider extent, of more general service, and always flourishes, whereas the use of faith is only for a time. If we look to excellence, the love of God undoubtedly holds the first place. Of it, however, Paul does not here speak, for the only thing he insists on is that we should by mutual charity edify one another in the Lord. But let us suppose that charity is in every respect superior to faith. What man of sound judgment, nay, what man with any soundness in his brain would argue that it therefore does more to justify? The power of justifying, which belongs to faith, consists not in its worth as a work. Our justification depends entirely on the mercy of God and the merits of Christ. When faith apprehends these, it is said to justify. Now, if you ask our opponents in what sense they ascribe justification to charity, they will answer, being a duty acceptable to God, righteousness is, in respect of its merit, imputed to us by the acceptance of the divine goodness. Here you see how beautifully the argument proceeds. We say that faith justifies not because it merits justification for us by its own worth, but because it is an instrument by which we freely obtain the righteousness of Christ. They, overlooking the mercy of God and passing by Christ, the sum of righteousness, maintain that we are justified by charity as being superior to faith. Just as if one were to maintain that a king is fitter to make a shoe than a shoemaker, because the king is infinitely the superior of the two. This one syllogism is ample proof that all the schools of Sorbonne have never had the slightest apprehension of what is meant by justification by faith. 
Should any disputant here interpose and ask why we give different meanings to the term faith as used by Paul in passages so near each other, I can easily show that I have not slight grounds for doing so. For while those gifts which Paul enumerates are in some degree subordinate to faith and hope, because they relate to the knowledge of God, he, by way of summary, comprehends them all under the name of faith and hope, as if he had said, Prophecy and tongues and the gift of interpreting and knowledge are all designed to lead us to the knowledge of God. But in this life it is only by faith and hope that we acknowledge God. Therefore, when I name faith and hope, I at the same time comprehend the whole. Quote, now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. Unquote. That is, how great soever the number of the gifts, they are all to be referred to them. But, quote, the greatest of these is charity, unquote. From the third passage they infer, if charity is the bond of perfection, it must be the bond of righteousness, which is nothing else than perfection. First, without objecting that the name of perfection is here given by Paul to proper union among the members of a rightly constituted church, and admitting that by charity we are perfected before God, what new result do they gain by it? I will always object in reply that we never attain to that perfection unless we fulfill all the parts of charity, and will thence infer that as all are most remote from such fulfillment, the hope of perfection is excluded. Section 9. I am unwilling to discuss all the things which the foolish Sarbanus have rashly laid hold of in Scripture as it chanced to come in their way and throw out against us. Some of them are so ridiculous that I cannot mention them without laying myself open to a charge of trifling. I will, therefore, conclude with an exposition of one of our Savior's expressions with which they are wondrously pleased. When the lawyer asked him, quote, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Unquote, he answers, Quote, if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments, unquote. Matthew 19, verses 16 and 17. What more, they ask, would we have when the very author of grace bids us acquire the kingdom of heaven by the observance of the commandments, as if it were not plain that Christ adapted his answers to the characters of those whom he addressed. Here he is questioned by a doctor of the law as to the means of obtaining eternal life, and the question is not put simply, but is, what can men do to attain it? Both the character of the speaker and his question induced our Lord to give this answer. Imbued with a persuasion of legal righteousness, the lawyer had a blind confidence in works. Then all he asked was, What are the works of righteousness by which salvation is obtained? Justly, therefore, is he referred to the law in which there is a perfect mirror of righteousness. We also distinctly declare that if life is sought in works, the commandments are to be observed, and the knowledge of this doctrine is necessary to Christians. For how should they betake themselves to Christ, unless they perceive that they had fallen from the path of life over the precipice of death? Or how could they understand how far they have wandered from the way of life, unless they previously understand what that way is? Then only do they feel that the asylum of safety is in Christ, when they see how much their conduct is at variance with the divine righteousness which consists in the observance of the law. The sum of the whole is this. If salvation is sought in works, we must keep the commandments by which we are instructed in perfect righteousness. But we cannot remain here unless we would stop short in the middle of our course, for none of us is able to keep the commandments. Being thus excluded from the righteousness of the law, we must betake ourselves to another remedy, viz., to the faith of Christ. Wherefore, as a teacher of the law, whom our Lord knew to be puffed up with a vain confidence in works, was here directed by him to the law, that he might learn he was a sinner exposed to the fearful sentence of eternal death. So others, who were already humbled with this knowledge, he elsewhere solaces with the promise of grace, without making any mention of the law. Quote, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Unquote. Quote, Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Unquote. Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29. Section 10. At length, after they have wearied themselves with perverting scripture, they have recourse to subtleties and sophisms. One cavil is that faith is somewhere called a work. John 6, verse 29. Hence they infer that we are in error in opposing faith to works, as if faith, regarded as obedience to the divine will, could by its own merit procure our justification, and did not rather, by embracing the mercy of God, thereby seal upon our hearts the righteousness of Christ, which is offered to us in the preaching of the gospel. My readers will pardon me if I stay not to dispose of such absurdities. Their own weakness, without external assault, is sufficient to destroy them. 
One objection, however, which has some semblance of reason, it will be proper to dispose of in passing, lest it give any trouble to those less experienced. As common sense dictates that contraries must be tried by the same rule, and as each sin is charged against us as unrighteousness, so it is right, say our opponents, that each good work should receive the praise of righteousness. The answer which some give, that the condemnation of men proceeds on unbelief alone, and not on particular sins, does not satisfy me. I agree with them, indeed, that infidelity is the fountain and root of all evil, for it is the first act of revolt from God, and is afterwards followed by particular transgressions of the law. But as they seem to hold that in estimating righteousness and unrighteousness the same rule is to be applied to good and bad works, in this I dissent from them. The righteousness of works consists in perfect obedience to the law. Hence you cannot be justified by works unless you follow this straight line, if I may so call it, during the whole course of your life. The moment you decline from it, you have fallen into unrighteousness. Hence it appears that righteousness is not obtained by few works, but by an indefatigable and inflexible observance of the divine will. But the rule with regard to unrighteousness is very different. The adulterer or the thief is by one act guilty of death because he offends against the majesty of God. The blunder of these arguers of ours lies here. They attend not to the words of James, quote, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill, unquote, etc. James 2, verses 10 and 11. Therefore it should not seem absurd when we say that death is the just recompense of every sin, because each sin merits the just indignation and vengeance of God. But you reason absurdly if you infer the converse, that one good work will reconcile a man to God, notwithstanding of his meriting wrath by many sins. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.